Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliadi, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 1, All is Not Well in Zion. First session today is really a lot of bad news. We're going to do the bad news first, and then next week we'll have the good news. Next couple of sessions beyond this one, we'll probably be dealing with how visions of glory compares with the prophecy of Isaiah on some specific points. I want to give a little background on the book of Isaiah, first of all, before we begin. And that is, how do we know what time period it's talking about? Because many scholars, they seem to base their interpretations on what happened in history. And yet the Book of Mormon seems to be applying Isaiah just across the board to the end time, as an end time scenario. Not all Latter-day Saints realize that, because some are applying things that are in Isaiah to the time of Joseph Smith. The book of Isaiah doesn't talk about the time of Joseph Smith, or just alluding to it, but it's an end time scenario, and how do we know that? I was taught that in rabbinic school in Israel, that it relates historically to Isaiah's day. With the, these are some basics on Isaiah that we just have to get past. Many of you already know that because you've read my books, have been to my lectures. But for those of you who don't know that, we just need to cover that so we're on the same page together. He said the book of Isaiah can apply to his own day and also to the end time. I said, how do you know that? He said, we have no proof, but it's a tradition among us. Well, it's a very Jewish approach to think that something has a dual fulfillment like that. One historical in the time of the prophet and another in the end time. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9, which says, that which has been shall be. It's the Hebrew typological point of view instead of necessarily a logical point of view. The Western is logical, the Hebrew is typological. Jesus gives it as a key to understanding Isaiah, all things that have that he spake have been and shall be, he says in 3 Nephi 23. You have to search it to get that understanding because once you superimpose the book of Isaiah, the entire thing, on the end time, then the rules change. Then what happens to the names of these ancient nations and persons? They become code names for end time nations and persons. And the names themselves actually lose their significance, the literal names lose their significance because they don't apply anymore, because those nations don't exist anymore. Even though there are nations like Egypt or Greece or Daniel mentions Greece and Persia and so forth, those names don't relate to nations in the Middle East today. The way that when you superimpose the book of Isaiah on the end time, then you have to go by how Isaiah characterizes those nations. And Egypt he characterizes as the great superpower of the world to which the smaller nations of the world looked for protection against the other great world power, Assyria. Not Syria, Assyria. It was the first nation to conquer the ancient world by military force. It becomes a code name for a latter-day Assyria, a great world power from the north. Actually, an alliance of nations that eventually conquers the entire world, except Zion, 
And then we have to define what Zion is because Isaiah has his definition of Zion and we can't just blanket apply somebody else's definition when we do that. Isaiah has his own definitions on every single word that he uses. It's a huge web of interconnections and you can never take one prophecy out of Isaiah and start putting a spin on it or interpretation on it because that doesn't work. You have to connect it with all the other instances of it and with all the other things that Isaiah speaks about because all the events that he speaks about are interrelated. So are there any questions about that before we go any further? I don't mind fielding questions so long as they're to the point and stay on topic. And also you may have some interpretations of your own, but I have a rule that says if you can't show it, don't say it. So you have to be able to show it in the scriptures or at least be able to figure it out from the scriptures. Everything's not always obvious. It's not always what appears. But if you can't show it some way, then don't say it. Okay? We're within certain guidelines here. Are there any questions before we move on to the bad news that we're going to discover today? Yes? I am using my own translation of Isaiah. There are several books over there that have it or just on the screen will also have it. I'd like to ask you not to record this because we are recording it and it's happened in the past that people record things and then before you know it, it goes out there and then it kind of defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do. We're trying to help this foundation promote this work and it's best if somebody doesn't undercut that. Okay. Question. Yes, uh, Mike and Nancy James are recording this and we'll turn it into videos. Then it'll be available online when the series is completed. When they finish embellishing the video series, it'll be available as a download on one of our websites. All right, probably josephandjuda.com. And that's the one that most of you have registered on for this course. Okay, any other questions? All right, let's go to our first scripture. Chapter 28, which is addressed to Ephraim or Ephraim. Now, I have to understand about Ephraim. When Jacob laid his right hand before his death on Ephraim's head and blessed him, he gave him the birthright blessing. And Joseph wanted to move the hands because Manasseh was the eldest. And he said, no, my son, I know what I'm doing. He also will be great, but his younger brother will be greater than he. Now, you have to understand what the birthright blessing is because it's a responsibility. It's a double portion of the inheritance, but for a good reason, because that son is responsible when the father gets old or dies for his siblings to take care of everybody. What Joseph did in Egypt when he took care of everybody during the years of the famine, he became a savior to his brethren, even though they had sold him as a slave. In fact, it was because they sold him as a slave that Joseph became so empowered because with opposition comes empowerment. When you get into Isaiah, you'll understand that principle. So opposition is necessary. In Isaiah, you go through a descent phase before you ascend to a higher spiritual level. That is the birthright role that Ephraim has in the end time. 
it's not just a luxury, it's a privilege, it's obligation. But it involves going through the same kind of emotions Joseph did, very often being sold into bondage and things like that, or having to experience trials and afflictions and opposition from even people you love who misunderstand you and who don't understand what this Savior principle is all about and how it works. We're going to cover that next week. If we get through today, through the bad news, then we'll cover the good news, hopefully most of the session next week. We'll see how far we get today. So it's really a hard thing then when Ephraim, the birthright tribe, is really not living up to his birthright role. That's why in Cisna Doctrine and Covenants, if you're not saviors, it'll be a salt as a lot at saver. We as Ephraimites, who've come through the Gentile lineages, we don't have the luxury of just sitting back and just accepting the gospel and that's it. We have more to do. And if we'll not be saviors of our brethren, we will be a salt as a lot at saver. Also, when Jacob laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, he said, predicting the end time, his offspring will be a multitude of nations, it says in the King James. But that's a mistranslation. It says his offspring will become the fullness of the Gentiles. And that expression, the fullness of the Gentiles, appears four times in the scriptures. In Romans 11, Paul uses it to compare the natural branches of the olive tree with the wild branches of the olive tree that are grafted in. The natural branches in the end are grafted back into the olive tree when or after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so if you equate that expression, the fullness of the Gentiles, with Ephraim's offspring, end-time offspring, then after Ephraim's end-time offspring has gathered, then the natural branches will be grafted back into the olive tree. And that is also how the Book of Mormon uses it. In 1 Nephi 15, the gospel is restored to the Gentiles. And by Book of Mormon definition, we are the Gentiles. Latter-day Saints are called the Gentiles. We are the Ephraimite lineages that assimilated into the Gentiles. As it says in Hosea chapter 7, verse 8, Ephraim has assimilated into the Gentiles. Ephraim is a cake unturned, it says in the King James. Ephraim is a half-baked pancake. It's a synonymous parallel. He's a half-baked pancake because he's part Gentile and part Ephraimite, because he's assimilated. The ten tribes are lost from history, and they assimilated, many of them, but particularly the tribe of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim, like the prodigal son, has come out of the Gentiles, claiming his birthright, and the other son is not happy about that. The Jews are not happy that we're claiming to be Israelites. So the role of Ephraim is twofold, and that's why in the Book of Mormon you have this dichotomy, us being called Gentiles, we do two things. We either harden our hearts or we repent. Repent of what? We have the gospel. Well, that's not enough. You know, it's not enough to fulfill your birthright role. We have to repent of our materialism, and we'll get into that in just a bit, and fulfill our birthright role. We have to, first of all, understand how it works, how that birthright role works, and we'll understand that without discussions next week or the week after, whichever, so that we don't become as salt as lost its savor, so that we don't become those Gentiles who harden their hearts, because the Lord is going to make some moves, apparently soon, and then people are going to react in two different ways. 
they're going to harden their hearts or repent. They'll realize they'll need to repent. So Isaiah 28 being addressed to Ephraim has a message for us today because the entire book of Isaiah relates to the end time. During my doctoral program at BYU, I found the literary proof for what Rabbi Goldstein was saying for what Jesus says in 3 Nephi, all things he speak have been and shall be, that is, in the end time. And then Jesus, of course, speaks of the prophecies of Isaiah as part of an end time scenario. Whenever Nephi, Jacob, his brother, or Jesus, or others in the Book of Mormon, whenever they start talking about the end time, they use Isaiah as a basis for prophesying. And then they nuance it, give keys to understanding it, or amplify it or interpret it in some way. But Isaiah is the basis. But they don't spill all the beans all at once because Isaiah doesn't work that way. They know how Isaiah works. Isaiah doesn't give it to you all at once, like neatly packaged, like to buy in the supermarket. And all you have to do is open it and cook it. It doesn't work that way. Jesus makes it a commandment to search diligently the words of Isaiah because without that, you'll never get it. And there are those who think they don't have to do that because there are experts who tell us what it means. No, there aren't. There are no experts that tell you what it means. And if they claim to be so, including me, then they're on the wrong track. Each person has to do that themselves individually. What I do is give you the tools, the literary tools for understanding it, but you have to do it yourself and put it together. Otherwise, you'll never get it. And it's a growth process that even with the literary tools that I provide in my books, it takes about two years to assimilate this huge paradigm that's Isaiah. Two years of diligent application of learning, learning, learning. When I started making literary discoveries in the book of Isaiah, I totally needed to revamp my whole previous thinking about what Isaiah was saying. I thought, really? This changes everything. Yes, it does. It just changes the rules for interpreting Isaiah completely. And after I had assimilated the new evidence, I discovered another one. Then I totally had to revamp my thinking again. And this kept happening and happening and happening over and over again, till finally I reached the plateau. Once I reached that plateau, then I started publishing books. But I didn't feel qualified to do that until I had paid the price, until I had done the research and completed the work. And it's the same with you. As you get into Isaiah, and those of you who have done so know what I'm talking about, don't get too excited about what you're learning. I mean, it's revolutionary, true. It's amazing. It, it just takes the whole book of Isaiah and applies it to stuff happening today. And that's beautiful. But a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, so don't try to convert everybody to the cause kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Don't start proselyting Isaiah until you've got a handle on Isaiah. In fact, better not say anything for the next two years if you're just a beginner. Now, seriously, really. Because what it does, is because you half-cocked knowledge, so to speak, I'm, I don't mean to offend, but a half-cocked idea can actually be taken wrong very often, and is, and so 
you'll just make trouble for yourself. Until you really get a handle on it, don't say anything. And even then, when you do, you'll know that you need to be careful. You'll know it. So you won't say much anyway. It's a funny thing, this book of Isaiah, these words of Isaiah. They're so pertinent for our day, and yet, the moment you try to broach it to somebody, oh, no, 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 I haven't heard that a thousand times before, so that can't be true. You know, that's the attitude. Isaiah, oh, those are just some interesting platitudes and, you know, symbolisms or something. Ah, uh, no, it ain't. It's huge. It's everything. It's the whole end-time scenario. And you're just starting in on it right now. And if you don't know it in time, then what's going to happen to you? You better learn it. Because then you'll be like straw blown about in the breeze, not knowing what to do. That's Isaiah. So let's not get presumptive about Isaiah. It's a huge minefield. I mean, for good and for bad. And also, when we get into this bad news today, and Isaiah really spells it out, he doesn't make any bones about the situation that's going to be in the end time when the words of Isaiah are going to be fulfilled. Nephi says, in the days that the prophecies of Isaiah will be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety the times when they come to pass. 2 Nephi 25. Wherefore, those that say they're not of great worth, to them will I speak particularly, he says, for they shall be of great worth unto them in the last days, for in that day they will understand them. People are going to, across the board, he doesn't say the house of Israel, he said, doesn't say the Gentiles, he says, the children of men. How are they going to learn it? Right here. From these tools, because I don't know anybody else who has discovered these literary tools, or these literary features of Isaiah, to unearth all of this knowledge. And I've been doing that since the 1980s, going on 35 years at this. So, when we get into these scriptures now, especially this here in Isaiah 28, be careful that you don't slip into the mode of judging people, judging others, judging leaders, judging your neighbors, judging those who don't understand Isaiah. No judging should happen here, neither here in this class nor hopefully privately. I pray for people every day that they will not misunderstand Isaiah and that they will not go off the deep end with the knowledge that they gained from Isaiah or leave the church or start judging people because that will immediately send you on the wrong path. And if that's the path you're going to take from these lectures, then please, there's the door. Don't go there. It's a warning I'm giving you and a caution. These two, verse 7, have indulged in wine then you have to go through the book of Isaiah and look up wine. That's why I have a concordance back there. Look and see how he identifies what wine is. For example, the wine of Babylon is spoken of elsewhere. Is that Isaiah's definition? Not saying. Find it out. A giddy with strong drink, that's a parallelism, a synonymous parallelism. That's how Hebrew poetry works. Priests and prophets have gone astray through liquor, they're intoxicated with wine. Another parallelism. Two synonymous statements. They stagger because of strong drink. They err as seers. They blunder in their decisions. For all tables are filled with vomit. No spot is without excrement. What is vomit? 
is talking about tables, but tables are a synonym of tablets. So the whole gist of this chapter is about getting revelation, going beyond the basic things to personal revelation or to ongoing revelation. The very thing that Ephraim boasts of, that they're different from everybody because we have revelation now. It's not what Isaiah is saying. Whom shall he give instruction? Whom shall he enlighten with revelation? These guys? Apparently not, because they're not up to it yet. Weanlings wean for milk, those just taken from the breast. Like Paul, he makes a differentiation between the milk and the meat. He says, you have need of milk still. By now you should be getting meat. How come? How long has it been since the time of Joseph Smith that we're still on the milk diet? And vomit? What is that? These tables, if they're tablets, which is what this whole thing is about, it's about a learning experience, the line upon line, verse 13, it's a school master principle. This is, gets a little pukey. <laughs> we are supposed to ingest half-digested materials that have been spewed up on the table? Go figure that one. Isaiah is pretty graphic. I'm not sure we're going to have graphics on the video about that, though. Well, <laughs> I told you it was bad news, okay? So, For it is but line upon line, precept upon precept. Actually, it's line upon line, line upon line. Why does it repeat it like that? You know what the Hebrew says? It uses assonance and alliteration and repetition to parody the rote method of learning that's still used by Arabs in the Middle East where students parrot back to the teacher whatever the teacher says instead of the teacher putting things out there for them to think about, use their brains. Because that's how you learn, not by parroting back. Kavla kav, kavla kav, tzavla tzav, tzavla tzav. Does that sound like something pleasant? It does not. A trifle here, a trifle there, a little bit, a teeny bit. Is that, are we forever condemned to learn that way? I don't think so. What about visions and dreams and near-death experiences? They show us the big picture all at once. As Joe Smith said, one look into eternity covers many volumes of books. Therefore, by incomprehensible speech, because nice speech doesn't work with you guys, Therefore, by incomprehensible speech and an alien tongue must he speak to these people. Because the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are going to invade, and they are going to speak with alien tongues. And we won't understand them, and they'll be telling us what to do. Because if we don't listen when he speaks nicely to us, then he's going to bring the enemies upon us, as he did the Lamanites upon the Nephites to stir us up to repentance, to get our act together. To whom he said, this is rest. Revelation is rest. You get a dream or a revelation, a real revelation, go through the scriptures and read the revelations. They're amazing. The visions Joseph Smith had are fantastic. And the other prophets in the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, Old Testament, if you have them yourself, you'll know what I mean. 
They are the anchor of your soul when you start having them. They give you so much knowledge. Like the prophet Joseph said, as well might man put his puny finger out to stop the Mississippi River in its decreed course and stop the Lord from pouring knowledge upon the heads of the saints. How did he pour that knowledge? Just by that. Kablakav, kablakav, tzavata. I don't think so. This is rest. Let the weary rest. What's wearying? The kablakav, tzavlatav is wearying. But they would not listen. So to them, the ones who stay with the basic principle of the schoolmaster method, the word of the Lord remained. Line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept. A trifle here, a trifle there. That persisting, persisting in this mode of, of doing things, they might lapse into stumbling and break themselves and become ensnared and be taken captive. You mean line upon line is not enough? Ah, uh, told you it wasn't. He's saying it's not. That reminds me, don't say Brother Gilead said this. If you say anything at all, say, I think Isaiah might be saying that. Okay, next. What we just read reminds me a lot of Alma 12, 9 through 11. Alma began to expound these things unto him, saying, It is given unto many to know the mysteries of God. Are oh, the mysteries? Oh, no, we can't touch them. Oh, well, listen a moment. Nevertheless, they are laid under a strict command that they shall not impart, that is, of the mysteries, only according to the portion of his word which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give him. That's why I cautioned you about saying too much about Isaiah before you know the whole thing, and even then you'll, know you'll have your own cautions. Only according to the heed and diligence which people give, those are the ones you can talk to. And then only by degrees. Because people have to figure these things out themselves. You can't just unload upon people and tell them what it's all about. It doesn't work. They have to come to it themselves. And if they don't, they will not inherit any exaltation. Promise you. The scriptures say that. Brigham Young said it. Therefore, he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word, the line upon line, precept upon precept, or the milk versus the meat. And he that will not harden his heart, to him is given the greater portion of the word, until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of God, until he know them in full. How can you know the mysteries of God in full unless you have personal revelation to the degree that these prophets had revelations and dreams and visions? How can you? And besides, that is the greater portion of the word by his definition. The greater portion is the mysteries, and we are to learn them. Nephi said we should learn them, too. And they that will harden their hearts to them is given the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. Then they are taken captive by the devil and led by his will down to destruction, and this is what is meant by the chains of hell. Well, didn't we read that in Isaiah just a moment ago? Snared and taken captive? If they stay with the line-upon-line line principle if they stay with the pukiness, for want of a better word. Yeah, so sometimes Isaiah rubs off on me a little bit, and I have to apologize, but let's move on. Isaiah 38 through 11. Go now, write on tablets concerning them. There are the tablets, again, the same word as tables in Hebrew. So it's actually a rhetorical definition of the word tables here. 
that he gives with the word tablets, on which you write and write books and revelations. Recorded in a book for the end time, that is the book of Isaiah, that the Lord is giving Isaiah a commission to write. So it's a book and also tablets. Where are those tablets? We don't know. I suppose one of these days they'll turn up in the Middle East or possibly somewhere else, wherever Isaiah put them. I'm sure he hid them in a good place for them to come out at some point undisturbed and unchanged so that we'll know exactly what the original book of Isaiah said versus the 800 AD Ben Asher Codex, which is the most authoritative and legitimate book of Isaiah that we have in Hebrew today, even more so than the 200 BC manuscript of the Dead Sea Scroll sectaries, or 200 AD, from a 200 BC manuscript. They are a rebellious people, sons who break faith, children unwilling to obey the law of Jehovah. Isaiah says in the Hebrew too, all through the Old Testament, it says, the Lord, in capital letters, that's Jehovah in the Hebrew, who say to the seers, see not, and to those with visions, predict not what is right for us, flatter us, foresee a farce, get out of the way, move aside, off the path, cease confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. We don't want to know the truth. We're happy in our comfort zone. I don't want to move out of it. Please don't tell me all that stuff. That is fringy or that is weird, or that is whatever it is. So, do we have people today who are seeing things, or hearing voices, <laughs> and who are fringy, or <laughs> called so by some, but no. It seems like there's an explosion now of dreams about the end time and visions about the end time and near-death experiences. Go on YouTube. There's dozens of them. Very explicit. If they were not true, would they all be similar and kind of cohere with each other, though they come from totally different sources? Look at the Hebrew prophets themselves. They started writing from the time of Moses, time of Abraham all the way to New Testament times. Then you had the Book of Mormon, a thousand years. Every prophet in every age, this is what's beautiful about the standard works, the scriptures, and evidence that they are true. They don't clash with each other. They don't disagree with each other. There are paradoxes that you can explain that help you to figure out things, as Joseph Smith said, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest, meaning when you solve these paradoxes, as also the rabbis say, then you learn more truth. But all of these prophetic scriptures cohere with each other. And the beautiful thing, except there may be one or two people who are making up things that go on the internet, but most people are very sincere. And these are really precious experiences to them that they've published in different ways. And they all cohere with each other. Some go straight to heaven in a near-death experience. Others go straight to hell. Why? Because there are all these spiritual levels. And so it depends on what level you're at when you go into the spirit world, where you are when you go there. And then some people are 
shown these different spiritual levels of hell, then they clean up their act, and then they end up in a better place the next time they go, when they finally go. Are we limited to whom the Lord chooses, let me put it that way, as his prophets? Because he says, for example, in the Beatitudes, starts off with, blessed are the poor in spirit, and so forth, and then it gets heavier and heavier as time goes on, Blessed are the peacemakers. And finally, blessed are you when men speak all evil of you falsely for my name's sake, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Because by that time when you're getting that kind of opposition, and you will be sure to get it, you are on the level of a prophet. So prophets can come from anywhere. Moses says, when he was told there are two prophets out in the camp, Moses was not offended or defensive. He said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. All right, Isaiah 9, 13 through 16. But the people do not turn back to him who smites them, nor will they inquire of Jehovah of hosts. The Lord of hosts is Jehovah of hosts in the Hebrew. Therefore, Jehovah will cut off from Israel head and tail, palm top and reed, in a single day. The day, by definition, is the day of judgment that comes upon the entire world. But guess what? I was asked to... I taught high priests in my ward in Orem for about 10 years. The last two years was the Joe Smith Manual, which was the highlight of any teaching I've ever done. And then I was still asked later to teach lessons, and, and one was on, in the manual, the new manual, about the last days, about the destructions coming in the last days upon the world and the signs of the second coming, the signs of the coming of, of Lloyd. And so I said to them, catch their attention, because they're a high priest, you know, they tend to drift off. And I said, this sounds like a manual for dummies. A manual for dummies. What? You know? So I said, why is it that the destructions are coming upon the world in the last days? And nobody could answer. I said, the pattern from the scriptures is what... In the Old Testament, when the ten tribes apostatized, the Assyrians became a world power and conquered the world by military force. And the Hebrew prophets indict God's people, the ten tribes, for their apostasy and relate that world destruction that the Assyrians did to their apostasy. Over a hundred years later, the Babylonians did the same thing when the southern kingdom apostatized. The Jews. So there we have a dual witness of a scriptural pattern that when God's people, and we are God's people today, we're the covenant people today. When they apostatize, then the destructions come upon the world. Not until then. They, in fact, are the catalyst of world destructions. So that day is the day of judgment when God's destructions come upon the entire world and it's a twofold thing, the destruction of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous. Well, we're the righteous, so we're okay. Oh, wait a minute. Whoa, you know, how do you know that? Because if you say that, chances are you're expressing some self-righteousness there. Because that's not the Lord's definition of righteousness. There are very specific things in Isaiah that define what righteousness is not what you apply to yourself willy-nilly, thinking you're okay. 
deliverance of the righteous happens when the wicked are destroyed, because when the wicked are destroyed, who's left? Only the righteous. The elders or notables are the head, the prophets who teach falsehoods, the tail. The leaders of these people have misled them, and those who are led are confused. That expression, these people or this people, is a repudiation of the covenant relationship of the Lord with his people. Because normally he would say, my people, or his people. He would use the possessive pronoun. But when he says, these people, I don't want anything to do with them. They've broken the covenant. Told you it was bad news. But there's always a redeeming side, and we're going to get to that. Just count on it. It's coming. We're going to cover that too. You'll be amazed how wonderful and how great that redeeming side is. This is all part of the Lord's plan. He had this all figured out, not only from the time of Isaiah, but from the foundation of the world, because he assigned people to take care of all this situation. And he's going to. 56. The bad news gets worse. Can't get any worse. This chapter of 56 starts off talking about the foreigners, the aliens who are the slaves to God's covenant people, the eunuchs, people captured from foreign nations who are doing all the menial work in the Lord's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And so they're saying to themselves, I'm of no worth. What am I? Look at all these people here around me. They have all these glorious promises and they have a covenant God and I don't and da-da-da. And the Lord takes them to task and says, oh no, and we're going to get to that in the next lesson or so, which I already have prepared. No, you count just as much as anybody else. All you have to do is keep the terms of the covenant, God's law and word, the terms of the covenant. And your blessings are as great as any Israelite. And so, in this chapter, Isaiah is contrasting the lowest echelon of society in the first part of this chapter with the highest echelon of society, the prophets and seers of the people, the one everybody gives adulation to or reverences. And this is what he says. All you wild beasts, your animals of the forest come and devour. Why? Because to be devoured by wild beasts is a covenant curse, which tells you what? that whoever he's talking to has broken the terms of the covenant and now the curses of the covenant are coming upon them. Their watchmen are altogether blind and unaware and by definition watchmen are prophets and seers. All of them are but dumb watchdogs unable to bark. Lowling seers fond of slumber, gluttonous dogs and insatiable, such indeed are insensible shepherds. Remember, dogs are not kosher animals. So, this is about as low as they can get. They're all diverted to their own way, everyone after his own advantage. Come, they say, let us get wine and have our full of liquor. For tomorrow will be like today, only better, even far better. It doesn't bear thinking about. And when this will be fulfilled, I can't say. This is an end time scenario, that's all I know. This is what precedes the second coming of the Lord, which in Isaiah is the coming of Jehovah to rule upon the earth. The coming of Jehovah 
in Isaiah is the second coming of Christ, in other words. And this is what happens in the time before Jehovah comes. Because Isaiah is one single end time scenario. It's not from the time of Joseph Smith. It's about a period of seven years or so. And it hasn't started yet. It's not yet started. But when it starts, this is the situation. So don't jump to conclusions as I cautioned you. Don't start judging. Don't, don't go there. There are still things to happen before this plays itself out, I assure you. And these are the Lord's covenant people. This is not pointing the finger at the non-covenant people. As we've always been one to do, we always say, oh, you know, when those calamities happened to the Nephites, they had it coming to them. Or the Jaredites. Well, what does Moroni say about the Gentiles? He cautions us using the Jaredites and the destruction of the Jaredites and of the Nephites as a warning to us. Because that's going to repeat itself too. That's in Isaiah. The Book of Mormon takes its cue from Isaiah. Isaiah predicts nothing for the end time unless he uses some kind of type and shadow from the past to predict the future. The Book of Mormon does the same. When they say they wrote less than a hundredth part of what they could have given in any given instance, they say that five times. What were the criteria for choosing so little to talk about and excluding so much else? Isaiah's criteria. What is that? To use the past to predict the future. That's how Isaiah predicts the end from the beginning. The end is contained in the beginning in the types and shadows from the past, in the time of the beginning, that foreshadow what happens in the end, the end time. That's a beautiful principle, and only God can orchestrate human history in that way. To bring everything that happened in the past in a different order, albeit, in a seven-year period. A new Passover, a new wandering in the wilderness, a new rebuilding of the temple, a new Sodom and Gomorrah destruction, all of that. A new Assyrian invasion of the promised land, our promised land, and so forth. Thirty major events I was able to pull out of Isaiah that Isaiah predicts new versions of. They're in my books. You know, look them up yourself. It's your own confirmation of them. So those who say Isaiah conveniently say, oh, that was back then, you know. That's what people said to Ezekiel. When Ezekiel was saying things that were uncomfortable, you know, to them, they said, oh, he's just talking about things in the future. The end time. <laughs> Ezekiel said, no, I'm not. I'm talking about today. Yes, he was also talking about the end time because Hebrew prophecy is like that. It applies on two levels. Their own day and the end time. So those who say, oh, it's now, we say, oh, it's back in the end time. And Ezekiel said, oh, it's in the future. Human nature hasn't changed. We're still saying the same thing. We don't want to face up to these uncomfortable truths. 42. What is the problem? What is the problem behind all this bad news we've been reading? One word. Idols. Idols, idols, idols. Uh, what idols? It seems ludicrous today that people back in those days would make little statues and bow down before them and light candles and 
or pray to the statue and so forth, put them in a prominent place in their house. And they had houses of Baal, where they worshipped Baal. What is Baal? What is Baalism? Read the Baal myth. In the Ugaritic myth of Baal and Anat, it's all about violence and sex. Go to a movie about violence and sex, and there's the Baal myth. It's alive and well in our culture. The basis of many movies. Today, Isaiah defines what idols are. He tells us it's the works of men's hands, but also human idols, people we idolize, people of power and prominent people in society. You can figure them out. Idols. What happens when we idolize people? What do you think of the BYU quarterback? Look at his statistics. Would Jesus go to a BYU football game? I don't think so. I think he had better things to do. There was one time I loved BYU football. I thought, this is a fantastic game. You know, it's so complex. I love it. I love the strategies. Wow. It's all about strategy. And then one day I said to myself, well, what else can I sacrifice? Yeah, but the church sponsors it, you know. It starts with a prayer, everything. I mean, a rock concert starts with prayers. It's sponsored by BYU. It's got to be good. No, I said, I can give that up. No problem. What happens when you do? It's like the blinders come off all of a sudden. After a while, when you start giving up your idolatry, the spiritual lights come on and you see things way more than you saw before. Well, I see everything. I, I, I see plenty. I, I know the fullness of the gospel. You don't have to tell me anything. That's a common attitude. Well, the very fact that you're saying that tells me you don't see very much, sir. Because you would never say that. Because when you really do see things, you say, wow, this is exponential. You know, the more I learn, the more I see there is to learn. It never ends. And what is this PhD degree? Anyway, it's nothing. When I was a, got my master's, I realized I wasn't the master of anything. The only reason I got a PhD is so people take me seriously. People of the world. It doesn't mean anything. In the Lord's scheme of things, nothing. Those are all idols. We have so many sacred cows blocking our way, we can't even see what's truth anymore. Send them on their way, and you'll notice a change in your life. Give up all the lesser laws and start keeping the higher laws. The laws of consecration and sacrifice. That's what we're going to get into next week, if we get there, we get past this. Those who trust in idols, well, I don't really trust in them. Yes, but the moment you are engaging with those things, you've already drifted into that realm. And it's like physical food. If you eat junk food, your body's going to turn into junk. You're going to have diseases and be overweight and get sick. And you have to be discerning about food and eat healthy food because your body is the temple of the spirit. When you do that, that also becomes spiritually more enlightening. Try it if you haven't. And esteem their images as gods. Well, these people on the news, these newscasters, 
They get it right all the time. Aren't they amazing? They keep us totally informed about what's going on in the world, right? I don't think so. They've been bought out. So if you want to rely on them, treat them as gods on the television, if that's your idol, you're already there. What this is talking about, there are alternative news sites that get it right, and even they have a hard time finding the truth. There is so much deception now, I've never seen so much in all my years. They shall retreat in utter confusion because retreating before your enemies is a covenant curse. Enemy invasion is a covenant curse. Plagues and calamities are covenant curses. They're not going to happen if you're righteous. And even when a nation or a people collectively are guilty and merit covenant curses or disasters or calamities, there is still a redeeming side to that because they can turn it into good. The whole reason covenant curses come upon you is so that you'll, it'll put you in the remembrance of God to start repenting of your idols and of your misdeeds and turn back to him and get your act together. And those who have their act together who are personally righteous when that situation, for them, he prepares a way of escape. Even when collectively people are experiencing covenant curses, there is always a way of escape for God's elect. Scriptures are full of it. Oh, you deaf, listen, you blind, look and see. While well, there's literal deafness and spiritual deafness and blindness. And when you think you see, that's usually when you're blind. Remember John 17? Was that scripture, the blind man was whom he healed, who was blind from birth, who went and washed in the pool of Siloam, and he saw, and he was put through his paces by the scribes and Pharisees who said, oh, you couldn't have been blind, that didn't happen. And then he said, hey, I was, and then they talked, they talked to his parents, oh no, that couldn't be, we're the authorities, it can't happen without us kind of thing. And so... They, I think they threw him out of the synagogue. And then Jesus said something to the effect of, you who claim to see are blind, but this man who is blind now sees. Again, the contrast between the poor man born blind and these authorities who claim to see, who are really blind, spiritually blind. Because of what? Because of their idolatries. What do they idolize? They idolize the law. You see them carrying their Torah scrolls around? Or they idolize their, their peers, the institution. Some form of idolatry, you'll find it in their lives. Oh, you deaf, listen, oh, you blind, look and see. Who is blind but my own servant? Or so deaf as the messenger I have sent? Who is blind like those I have commissioned as uncomprehending as a servant of Jehovah, seeing much but not giving heed, with open ears hearing nothing? Now there is the individual servant in the book of Isaiah, who is principally the Lord's end-time servant, who hasn't come yet. And what he does is prepares the way for the coming of Jehovah in the book of Isaiah. And we'll talk about that some next week. 
There's also the collective servant, which is God's people Israel. When God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai, they collectively became his servant. And they collectively kept his law, as Moses taught it. Until they did so, they did not enter the promised land, even though it was promised as a land of inheritance for Abraham's lineage, unconditionally, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but for Israel, conditionally, they had to keep his law and word so they could inherit it as a covenant blessing. It took 40 years for Moses to indoctrinate them to that point where all Israel was keeping his law and word. Then they could go into the promised land. That's the collective servant. King David, with him, we'll talk about that next time, the Lord made an individual covenant with King David and his heirs. And all those who are kings and priests in the house of Israel, well, we are house of Israel, see? Uh, yes, but not by Book of Mormon definition, you're not. Not by the definition of the Kirtland Temple dedicated prayer by Joseph Smith, who said, we who are identified with the Gentiles. Because he knew the Book of Mormon definition. If you don't know who you are, you don't know what role you have to fulfill. So fine, if you are a king and a priest in the house of Israel, and you really get to that point, spiritually, so where you can really claim that, in other words, that's on an elect level, calling election made sure, then you can identify with the house of Israel, scripturally. The individual servant in Isaiah is a servant who hasn't turned up yet. I don't know of anybody, some claimants who've come, of course, they've all been false claimants, they always come first, and I guess they're still coming. They're still declaring themselves, so they don't follow the pattern. Do they realize that? I don't think so. But they'll claim it anyway, so, so don't be duped. The counterfeits always come first. That's what happened before Christ's time. By the time he came, so many people had cried wolf, they thought, oh, here's another one, you know, another, another false alarm. Satan's very clever to do that. There's that individual servant who's the same servant all the way through the book of Isaiah. And then there is also the collective servant, the one he's talking about here, who has become kind of blind and deaf. For those of you who came late, today is bad news day, okay? We're giving the bad news first, which is what Isaiah does in the beginning of the book of Isaiah. It's mostly bad news. And then, at the end, the good news is marvelous. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the scriptures. So he's not a prophet of doom. He balances the two evenly. And so shall we. The prophecies of the events of the past I've made known long beforehand. No sooner did they issue from my mouth than I caused them to be announced. Now, mouth is usually a prophet. In fact, it's a code name for the Lord's servant in the book of Isaiah. We won't get into that today. Then I caused them to be announced. Then suddenly I acted and they came about. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck was an iron sinew, your brow brazen, kind of like a whore. Therefore I told you them beforehand. I announced them to you before they transpired. Bless you should say, my idols did it. My graven and wrought images caused it. So, people put a lot of store in the idols. 
because those who are immersed in idolatry see things totally differently from people who are spiritually in tune. But you have heard the whole vision, and this is an expression, the whole vision is the vision of all, or comprehensive vision, or apocalyptic vision. You have heard the apocalyptic vision. In other words, the book of Isaiah as a whole is the whole vision. It's like a whole vision. It's the end from the beginning. It's a complete picture. Isaiah has it all. Jesus said it. He spake as touching all things concerning my people, which are the house of Israel. I think the King James translates it the vision of all or something like that. How is it you do not proclaim it? Why are we not proclaiming the book of Isaiah and other end time scriptures like the book of Revelation? Why have we abandoned that? The very things that are informing us about today. We're neglecting the most. And I have concluded, because of my own experiences of coming to the understanding of Isaiah through the literary evidences, through the, the literary structures that carry their own message over and above what you read on the surface. What you read on the surface is only about 10% of the meaning. There's layers and layers within layers. There's prophecies within prophecies. There's, there's keywords, code names, word links. There are types and shadows. They're not given all at once. Over here you'll get a few domino pieces. Over here, a few domino pieces. Just like in the Book of Mormon. Whenever they quote Isaiah, they give us a few domino pieces here and there. Over about 14 different passages. And you think that when you zero in on one, you're going to get what it's saying? No, not until you put all 14 together. We are compelled to search to get the meaning out. And you will not get the meaning out until you do that. That's why it's like learning a whole new language. So I have concluded on that basis, because of the effort that I've had to put in to come to the understanding of Isaiah, that since without that you can't do that, people don't know what it's saying. They simply don't know. And then you have the King James translation from 1611, in its ancient antiquated language. And it's not an accurate translation. It's too literalistic. It's beautifully poetic, but that's about it. It'll translate one word in three different ways. You can't do that with Isaiah because a word may be a keyword, like the word ness in Hebrew. It means ensign. But the King James translates it ensign, standard, and banner. Three different ways. If you didn't know that, you'd totally be over your head. And it's an important word in the book of Isaiah because it's an alias of two people, the servant and the king of Assyria, an antichrist. One is an ensign, the other is an ensign. One rallies the righteous of God's people to the Lord's standard, the other rallies the wicked of the world to Satan's standard. And for the King James to say banner, standard, da-da-da, no. I've concluded people don't know, so nobody dares talk about it. And then there are these scholarly dissertations about it. And people will quote this part of Isaiah, that part of Isaiah, but never put the whole thing together. They never put the whole thing together. They can't until you come to terms with these mechanics of prophesying. He was a poet as well as a prophet. You've got to get to the guts of Isaiah and just dabbling in it doesn't work. Never will. Like that book, Isaiah for Dummies. Well, by the time you get through that, you'll still be a dummy. In fact, more of a dummy. I promise you, you will. Because it leads you down some garden path. It's just a distraction. 
Isaiah calls them sparks. I think it's chapter 51. You illuminate with mere sparks. No, this is a huge fire. It's like a bonfire burning. Yet as of now, I announce to you new things, things withheld from you and unknown to you. Because somebody's going to come along like that servant and 144,000 other servants who also appear in the book of Isaiah, not as 144,000, but once the one servant comes on the scene, so do the other servants. The same as in Jacob 5 in the, in the olive tree allegory, where before the final grafting scenario, the Lord appoints one servant to graft in the natural branches and to cut out the bad branches because it's full of fruit, the tree now, none of it any good. That's the end time scene. That's the apostasy. That's bad fruit. Why aren't we getting our act together and say, what bad fruit? Let's clean it up. We're not. The Lord tells the servant to go and to get other servants to graft in the natural branches, which by definition in the scriptures are the Jews and Lehi's descendants of the ten tribes. And who does it? The servant. And who are these servants? We'll get into that next time. So the Lord is going to do new things at that time. And they are going to announce things. There's going to be new announcements. It's going to catch people off guard. Look in every situation. Look when Jesus came on the scene. He totally caught people off guard. The establishment. The scribes and Pharisees. They opposed him. Jews have never made the connection that their own Lord Jehovah is their Messiah, as the Book of Mormon teaches. They never thought about that. They were expecting the Latter-day David, that end-time servant, who hasn't come yet. Go through all the scriptures and look up the end-time servant, or the David of prophecy. You'll see it's not talking about Christ. It's all in the context of Israel's end-time restoration that happens before the coming of Christ. And yet, we willy-nilly take these scriptures and just put any old interpretation on them, even in chapter headings. As if somehow we're privileged we can do that. We can take the Jewish scriptures, put our own spin on them, then go back to the Jews and say, hey, we've got the truth. The Jews have been so conditioned to that, they just laugh you out of existence. So, when Joseph Smith came on the scene, the professors of religion took exception to him. Whenever the Lord does new things, there's a division that occurs. So, you can be sure when these new things happen, whatever they are, I should actually qualify that. Isaiah tells you what they are. There's nothing Isaiah leaves up for grabs for private interpretation. I'm not giving you any private interpretation. If you can't show it, don't say it. And I can show it to you and we'll show it to you if you want, but you really need to find it out yourself. Things now coming into being, this is in the end time now, not hitherto, not in the past, things you have not heard of before, lest you should say, indeed, I knew them. I know that. You don't have to tell me. How often do you hear that? And then, things you have not heard of before, that connects to Isaiah 52, where the kings and queens, or the kings are told things they had not heard of before. So there's a clue, there's a connection, there's a word link. 
to the servant. The servants are going to tell you new things. But that, that's the kind of thing you need to do on your own. That's why we have concordances. That's why I have a concordance. The very best thing you can do for yourself individually to understand Isaiah is to do word searches. Spend 20 minutes every day doing word searches in Isaiah. The language will come to you in leaps and bounds when you do that. Start learning the vocabulary, the grammar, the concepts, word searches. Isaiah has his own definitions of what he means by something. We cannot interpret what he says based on some other scripture because that prophet who gave us that other scripture has his definition. Zion, the pure in heart, not in Isaiah. I mean, not that specifically. Isaiah defines Zion as those of Jacob or Israel who repent and also as a safe place for people who come out of Babylon. It's very specific. Yes, of course they're the pure in heart because people who repent will become pure in heart. But that's from the book of Moses. Isaiah is like a movie. It has its own internal reality, its own internal script. So you've always got to go by his definition. Never just apply something from outside of Isaiah to Isaiah. That's called arresting the scriptures. That's called manipulating. That's called proof texting. You have a belief. You search through the scriptures for something that supports your belief. Well, you're going to take something out of context if you do that. That's not what the Jews do. The manner of the Jews is to analyze what they say and say, why does it say it this way? What does that connect up with? Is this the only instance of this? Oh, look over here. It says it over here and da-da-da. Wow. Now I'm getting the whole picture. I'm putting the puzzle pieces together. I announced to you new things, things withheld and unknown to you. We didn't get them in Sunday school, did we? No. Things now coming into being not hitherto. Things you've not heard of before, lest you say, indeed I knew them. You have not heard them, nor have you known them. Before this your ears have not been opened to them. For I knew you would turn treacherous, you were called a transgressor from the womb. Wow. So, what should we say instead of saying, I knew that? You should say, what don't I know? Is it I, Lord? Remember, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me? Did they say, oh, we know it's that Judas guy? Because he handles the money, and we saw him one day taking a coin out of there. To come party, or whatever. No, he, they said, is it I, Lord? Could it be me? That should be our attitude. Second Nephi 28. This is where we really get to the nitty-gritty of us today. Because it's speaking about people in Zion. Who's in Zion today? We are. Not the Jews. Not the Lamanites. Not the ten tribes. We're in Zion. Or so we say. We say that, but we're also trying to establish Babylon as fast as we can. So there's a dichotomy among us. All right, so let's see what this says. Behold, at that day, 
that's the end time, he shall rage in the hearts of the children of men and stir them up to anger against that which is good. And others, this is not the time of Joseph Smith now. The Book of Mormon has talked about that in 1 Nephi, 1 Nephi 13. And others will he pacify and lull them into carnal security, that they will say, all is well in Zion, yea, Zion prospereth, all is well, and thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. Well, there's nothing like wealth to put you into a state of carnal security, right? When you're prospering, you don't need the Lord. You got it made. You're, you're self-sufficient. You're your own boss. That was the pattern among the Nephites. We don't need to regurgitate that. People don't stand on street corners saying, all is well. But it's an attitude, right? And behold, others he flatteneth away and telleth them, there is no hell. I heard something about that recently. There is no hell? Well, of course there's no hell. That's, it's not politically correct to believe there is a hell or that we have to be answerable for all our misdeeds. No. Anything goes nowadays, it's all legal. And he says unto them, I'm no devil, for there is none. I mean, how often do people talk today about casting out evil spirits? or even the fact that people might be possessed. That's not politically correct. For there is none. And thus he whispers in their ears until he grasps them with his awful chains from whence there is no deliverance. Yea, they are grasped with death and hell and death and hell. He's personifying them. The metaphor. And the devil and all that have been seized therewith must stand before the throne of God and be judged according to their works from whence they must go into the place prepared for them, even to a lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. Well, that's in Isaiah 2, the very last chapter, the last verse. In the millennial age, people go and look on the corpses of that people down in that pit of dissolution and see them burning down there. Forever and ever and ever they burn on, right? That's the Catholic point of view. That's what I was taught. No. There comes an end when they've gone through the second death. After they've paid for their crimes. That's the perdition category in Isaiah too. Therefore, woe be unto him that is at ease in Zion. Now verse 24, you begin with seven woes, which are covenant curses. Covenant curses coming upon people in Zion. But us. Because we've taken it easy. We have built fancy homes. We have plush this and plush that. Our hearts are set upon all our accoutrements. Our weekends and upon all our fun that we have. And the movies we go to. And this and that and the other thing. We idolize so many things. And we're at ease, we're happy, nobody bothers us. But when you go to an, you know, a third world country and see happy people living on nothing, practically, they actually have more than us. They're closer to God than we are with all our trappings of Babylon. Woe be unto him that crieth all is well. Second woe. 
Woe be unto him that hearkeneth to the precepts of men, and denieth the power of God, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Remember the scripture we read about precept upon precept. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of this 2 Nephi 28, which is similar to Isaiah 28, addressed to Ephraim. The precepts of men, what are they? Philosophies of men mingle with scripture? Well, maybe. It's something more sinister than that. It is, to me, I've come to realize there are many popular ideas in our culture today that have no scriptural basis. We believe them. We think they apply to this scripture or to that scripture. We get it from this and that and the other. But when you really examine the scripture and analyze it, the way the Jews do, or from what it actually says, it's not there. It ain't there. And yet we believe it and popularize it and stick with it and publish it in books and it's gospel. It's been gospel for generations. Popular ideas that have no scriptural basis. Precepts of men, not of God. If you have already made up your mind that this is what is true and somebody comes along and says, oh, that's not what it says, this is what it says. Oh, no, no, that's been published. So-and-so has written a book about it. He knows. Oh, no, he didn't know. He just assumed. He didn't look at it carefully enough. He didn't search the scriptures. Searching, searching, searching is the answer to idolatry. If you're immersed in idolatry and the blinders have come on, start searching and open your eyes. You'll find truths you never imagined were there before. What Spencer calls in his book, Visions of Glory, which we'll be talking about next time, the unlayering of truth. All scriptures are like that. They're in layers, and you go deeper and deeper and deeper. The same as iniquities are layered in you. When you start cleaning up your act through the repentance process, you have to go through unlayering all these dysfunctional things until you finally become clean, every wit without iniquities. It says in the Book of Mormon, no man can do a miracle, save he was cleansed every whit of his iniquities. That's not just sins, that's dysfunctional stuff, generational stuff that we passed on, iniquities of the fathers and the heads of the children of the third and fourth generation. Those are the effects of transgression that are with you even though you have been forgiven of your sins, of which you repented. There's a difference between sin and iniquity. It's in my books. Do your own definition. So you cannot have the Holy Ghost, you deny the power of the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost cannot bear witness of an untruth and say it's true. If you have a precept of men and you don't know what it feels like to have the Holy Ghost witness of something that's true, and that burning in the bosom, which is not just emotion or warm fuzzies, then you, know, you would not know that what you're believing is false. The Holy Ghost cannot bear witness to something that's not true. Woe be unto him that saith, we have received and we need no more. Now watch what happens in this chapter. This chapter, instead of leading us carefully down to hell, it is leading us very carefully along to understanding. Because the human nature is such that once you block one truth, and buy into an untruth, 
and you keep doing that repetitiously, what happens? The next time, pretty well down the road, you're not going to ever recognize the truth, even when it's presented to you. Even when it's really important that your life depends on it, you'll actually start fighting against that truth because you have continually kept blocking and blocking and blocking the truth. And this is what the Lord is going to do to test your loyalty to Him, whether you have kept His commandments, whether you have searched the Scriptures or not, whether you have repented or not, because understanding comes with repentance. There's no other way around it. The Israelites said to Moses, we will do and we will hear, or understand is the same word. We will do and we will hear. First, we will do what you say, keep the law, search, repent, clean up our act, then we will hear, then we'll understand. After many days, an angel of the Lord came to Adam and said, why do you offer sacrifice? Because he was doing and then he would hear. Then the angel explained the whole plan of salvation to him, the atonement. Not until then. You have to do first. Until you do first, you will not get it. You may get little bits and pieces of it, but those are just to egg you on, to encourage you. And then Daniel here asked me, well, how do you know once you understand Isaiah? Well, it's like one day you wake up and you realize you're an adult. The last brain cell has clicked into place and you understand, you know. There's something different now about you. It's like a rebirth, in fact. Once you understand Isaiah, all the scriptures suddenly open up to you. That's why Isaiah is such a key, a test. It's a deliberate challenge. You cannot sidestep it. No way. We have received, we need no more. Because the word more there is a key word. Look it up in the concordance. The word more is when the Lord actually gives you new revelation now. Not just correcting you on the old revelation that you've already received, which you're turning into precepts of men. See what I'm saying? This is the next step now. You've hardened your heart against corrections. Being corrected with the precepts of men, you don't want those. So now, when there's actually a new revelation what's doing, what are you going to say? Eh, you know, you're going to have a hard time with that. We've received. We don't need any more. It's coming up from a source I didn't expect, like people's near-death experiences or people's visions. So, we need no more. In fine, whoa, that's number five, verse 28, unto all those who tremble and are angry because of the truth of God. What happens when you keep rejecting the truth of God and the blinders come on and you don't want to move out of your comfort zone? At some point, you're going to get angry with the truth. You're going to end up fighting against Zion because why? Because it means you have to change and you don't want to change. Because it is making you look foolish. It's showing that you're a fraud. That you've got this little bit of peace that you're hanging on to and there's way more that you didn't know about and you don't want to know more about that. It's like Laman and Lemuel. When they come to Nephi to ask him about the tree of life that their father Lehi saw, and Nephi said, well, have you inquired of the Lord? And they said, of course not. The Lord makes no such thing known to us. And don't we say that in our hearts? Do we believe that, actually? Here's a precedent from the Scriptures that the Lord is saying, yes, I can. 
I can make it absolutely known to you. You have to inquire. You have to inquire diligently. You have to also do your homework and search it out. And then it's given to you. It's a promise from God. And what is Nephi's response to Laman Emil? He says, why will you harden your hearts? That's his definition of hardening the heart. What is that? They wouldn't inquire. They would not go to the trouble of inquiring for them. That is his definition of the hardening of the heart. That's not just fighting against it. That's also hardening the heart, but that's an advanced stage of hardening the heart, so to speak. Not inquiring is hardening the heart. We have received, we need no more. And more is the key word. Because what does he say here? Verse 28. For behold, he that is built upon the rock receiveth with gladness, and he that is built upon the sandy foundation trembleth lest he shall fall. And that is what I noticed now about saying that earlier to one of you. Isaiah is such a huge truth. It's more than people want to deal with that are in this comfort zone, in this all, all is well zone. It's more than they want to deal with. So they are trembling when they hear something that makes them uncomfortable, they have to change. But those who are into truth, they can't get enough truth, who are zealous for God's word, that's in Isaiah 65 and 66, they love the truth. They receive it with gladness. They're built upon the rock of revelation. The rock, which is the Lord himself, he's the rock of our salvation. The next woe. These woes are progressive woes because now it gets heavier and heavier as, as we go through the scripture. Woe be in which shall say, we have received the word of God. We need no more of the word of God for we have enough. So at some point the Lord is going to offer more of the word of God whether people want it or not. For behold, thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, and blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel. And some of them come through line upon line, precept upon precept. That is the rote method of learning. That is the, the milk before the meat. That's the lesser portion of the word versus the greater portion of the mysteries. For and lend an ear unto my counsel. So there's more than just hearkening to the precepts. There's also lending an ear unto his counsel. We mustn't just skip over things and not consider everything that is conditional upon us receiving revelation. There are those who are doing this who actually bring this about that the Lord is going to bring more. If there are not people seeking the truth, the Lord will not be bringing us more at some point. The Lord does nothing except people exercise faith beforehand. Moroni, his discourse on faith. People in Christ's time were exercising faith, some of them at least, that Messiah would come. They saw him in the temple, right? Anna, was it Anna the prophetess who was exercising faith? And then she saw the Lord. Now my eyes can close in death. Who said that? Some have to be exercising faith for the Lord to do a new thing to do his new thing. And then he's able to do it, but nothing happens without faith. But then those who are not exercising faith, who are not into the truth of God, who are happy with their old paradigm of the lesser portion 
of the line upon line, stay with that and don't move forward, they will tremble, they will reject it because they've been conditioned to reject and reject and reject. Until finally, listen to what it says. And lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto them that receive it, I will give more. So there is more than line upon line, precept upon precept. In what form, go through and look what more is through the scriptures, through the Book of Mormon. And you'll see, because this is from the Book of Mormon, look up the word more in the Book of Mormon. And you'll see that it's the vision the brother Jared had, which Moroni and I wanted to tell us and couldn't. And other things like that. Or all the things that Jesus taught the Nephites, which Mormon wanted to tell us and could not. That's the more. That's the more the Lord is going to reveal at some point. And from them that shall say, we have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. Well, we read that in Alma 12, 9 through 11, didn't we? Because even what they have now, the line upon line, the milk, they're going to lose that knowledge. Because when you keep hardening the heart and fighting against the truth, even that little portion is going to be taken away from you. That's why people say you apostatize, say, I wish I could believe the things I once knew. What you're saying is, what form does taking away take when things are taken away from us, that which we have? It means that with this rejection comes spiritual blindness. So the spiritual blindness gets to the point that after rejecting the truth and rejecting it, actually fighting against it at some point, becoming angry. You become angry, what, just to yourself? No, you're going to become angry with the messenger. You're going to try to hurt the messenger. Because that what happens, that always happens in the Lord's scheme of things. And so you get to the point where the spiritual blindness is so great, you don't even believe anymore what you once believed. Yea, woe be unto the Gentiles, because it's us Gentiles in Zion. He's talking about the Ephraimites who assimilated into the Gentiles, who are now coming out of the Gentiles, the ones who are not fulfilling their birthright role, who are rejecting the truth. That's the seventh woe, or curse, said the Lord God, for notwithstanding I shall lengthen out my arm unto them from day to day, they will deny me. So we end up denying Christ. We, in Zion, end up denying Christ when we go through this process, this step-by-step -step rejection. This is human psychology at work in a negative sense. It also works in the positive sense. By building upon truth in little ways, you gain more understanding. And then once you get more understanding on those truths, you assimilate them, you apply them in your life, you live by them, then you're given more understanding. And it gets exponentially larger and bigger. Until finally, you understand Isaiah, you understand the mysteries in full. You've got the whole picture and you know it when it happens. And it is empowering, it is liberating, it is beautiful. There's no scripture that you'll not be able to put into this one hole. One great hole of truth. Of which Isaiah is the centerpiece of all the scriptures. If they were a tapestry, they would all relate to each other through Isaiah. Isaiah is key. And we have swept it under the carpet. We make jokes about it. 
Oh, the bullet stopped at Isaiah there in the Book of Mormon. Remember the soldier story? He was shot at, and he had a Book of Mormon in his chest. And the bullet couldn't get through Isaiah. And so we move on beyond Isaiah. What a nice excuse that is. You know, how pitiful it is. How tragic it is. We have five lessons in Gospel Doctrine on Isaiah. And I said to a fellow Gospel Doctrine teacher, it ought to be a whole year of Isaiah. We still wouldn't get through it. Seriously. And people have come to my classes. There are some here. For two years, they keep coming, but there's always more to learn. And it's a beautiful thing. Isaiah is so empowering. It is wonderful. You look up the word arm in the book of Isaiah, and it is a key word, just like the word ensign. And there are two arms of God in the book of Isaiah. One is called righteousness, and one is called salvation. And look them up in the concordance. So those are the two arms of God, and arm signifies divine intervention. Like when Moses stuck out his arm over the Red Sea, and it's that kind of powerful empowerment that happens at some point when the Lord's arm is bared or revealed. Right? You've heard of the Lord bearing his arm. So the lengthening out of the arm all the day long is harking back to the imagery of Moses over the Red Sea when Pharaoh's armies were destroyed in the Red Sea, but the Israelites escaped. So when the arm of the Lord is revealed in the book of Isaiah, which is all through the Doctrine and Covenants also, because the Doctrine and Covenants uses many end-time prophecies, uses Isaiah as a basis for many end-time prophecies also. When the arm of the Lord is revealed, it's part of the new things that Isaiah is talking about. When new things start happening, the servant comes on the scene who personifies the Lord's arm. He is the arm of righteousness. He is righteousness in chapter 42, verse 6, verse 1. It's a person. He personifies righteousness in an age of wickedness and an age of self-righteousness. And so he establishes a new paradigm for righteousness, what righteousness is by, in the Lord's book, so to speak. It's the same as when Moses came to the Israelites, when Christ came to the Jews, or Joseph Smith to the sectarian Christians. He brings a new paradigm of what it means to be righteous. And the arm of salvation is the Lord himself. He personifies salvation. He comes as salvation in the book of Isaiah. Jehovah does. See, your salvation comes, his work preceding him, his reward with him. It's a person. It's Jehovah. And these are the two arms that intervene in the world in the end time. It's in my books. Isaiah decoded, there's too many. I'm not trying to sell them, but it's there if you want to. It gives you the tools for analyzing. That's what it's designed to do. A lot of my work is based on my 10 years of postdoctoral work, on my doctoral thesis, which is published in the Literary Message of Isaiah, which is a scholarly book. It's an academic book. There's a lot of literary analysis. It never ends. Literary analysis. But it's recently in an updated more like a layman's version of it, written in easier English to understand. That's where I cover the whole field of all of these literary tools, basically. And what's in Isaiah Decoded is kind of an outline or a synopsis of what is in the literary message of Isaiah. Well, that's actually in other scriptures. Seven years is one of those periods, like in Egypt, the seven years, 
three and a half years in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, that's half of seven. In Isaiah, it talks about three years. Isaiah uses himself in chapter 22 as a type and shadow of this end-time servant. And he's asked to go naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, or Egypt and Ethiopia. And Egypt being a code name for America, it's the great superpower of the world in Isaiah's day, which the way Isaiah characterizes leaves only one nation in today's world as an end time scenario, and that's America. A nation in decline, a nation, a great superpower to which the smaller of the nations of the world look for protection against the other superpower, the bad guy one. But it's suffering economic decline Eventually, it goes into anarchy and chaos, and enemies invade, and so forth. So, there's three years of warning given that appears twice in Isaiah. Babylon gets three years of warning. That goes back to your question. The Lord does nothing but what he revealeth his secret to his servants the prophets. Well, his secret is in Isaiah. If you want to know what happens in the end time, there's one of the prophets. Isaiah is an end-time prophet. His book is an apocalyptic prophecy. And then there are three years of the Day of Judgment that follow. Three years of warning, three years of destruction. The three years of warning haven't started yet. So I see those six years as part of the seven-year period that other scriptures talk about. I don't know how to place that six years within the seven-year period. I'm just assuming that it is because that's Isaiah's cycle. After the three years of warning, there's three years of dwelling in the wilderness. And that's in Isaiah. You can find it. Just look. I'm going to make you do it. Look up three years in your word search. We're not going to actually see the Holocaust scenario, Sodom and Gomorrah destruction, until three years of warning have happened. So they also needed to internalize what they saw. So I go with Isaiah. Isaiah also has the backstory. There's way more to Visions of Glory or to the other books. Isaiah has the big picture. These other books or these other visionaries, they just have some of the picture, specifically things that concern them personally. So you have to consider that. There's way more yet to happen before I believe. It seems totally illogical to me that could start that soon. I don't know how Revelation relates to Isaiah. I'm not into Revelation. There are a few things that I can connect, like the woman fleeing into the wilderness for three and a half years. So I, when Isaiah says three years in the wilderness, then I say, well, that three years must be part of the woman fleeing into the wilderness for three and a half years, because that woman is also in Isaiah, which is the woman Zion, or the daughter of Zion. Like I said, once you understand Isaiah, if I, if I went to the book of Revelation now, if I made it my agenda or my project, then I would begin to understand that too. But I haven't gone there enough to Revelation to start putting that together. I'm not about to guess. You know, it's an indictment on us that there seem to be more people out there who are not LDS, who are searching for the truth, who realize something is going on in the world, like the bottom has fallen out of life, politically and ecclesiastically. They want to have answers. And their preachers, many of them are good men. Their hearts are in tune. They are 
praying sincerely and earnestly and are getting answers. Why can't God tell them he speaks to all nations, he says, in their own language, in their own tongue, in their own culture. So if that's their culture, they are not members of the church right now. They haven't accepted the fullness of the gospel, but they are sincere seekers, if they are, in their own culture. Why can't the Lord give them revelation through whatever source he, he says he does? In fact, I see more seekers of truth on this subject than I see in the church. And it's an indictment on us, and maybe part of what we were reading earlier about Ephraim and the lesser portion and all that, line upon line principle. Isaiah creates a composite of types of the servant, because all the things that the end time servant does, who's not Christ, who's not Joseph Smith, will come to that, will show that. If you can't say it, don't show it. If you can't show it, don't say it. Who's not Christ, there's no one person in the past who does all the things that the servant does in the end time. So Isaiah has to create a composite of types. So he's a new Isaiah, he's a new Moses, he's a new Abraham, he's a new Joshua, he's a new Gideon. He does a lot of the things that those heroes of the scriptures did. And the same with the 144,000, his servant associates or fellow servants. They also have scriptural heroes like the sons of Messiah who converted the Lamanites because the Lamanites need converting today, and who's going to do it? You know. So let's end on there, and next time we'll start with some good news. Thank you for coming. This concludes Lecture 1, All is Not Well in Zion. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.